are looking this morning at the entirety of Genesis 33. You'll find that on page 27 if you're using a copy of the church Bible. And we are going to look this morning at Genesis 33, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read down to verse 20, Genesis 33, 1 through 20. And before we look at God's word again, let's go to him briefly in prayer and commit ourselves to him and acknowledge that unless he blesses the ministry of his word, what we do this morning is in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge that unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. And yet you've promised to send out your word as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth and causes it to bring forth in bud, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So you have said your word would not return to you void, but would accomplish the thing for which you sent it. And so our God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in us This morning, as your word is preached, we pray that those would be purposes of grace and redemption and salvation and sanctification. And our God, we pray that you would do a great and mighty work among us. We pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and magnified and worshipped. We pray that we would hear you speak as your word is read and preached. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 33. We read, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with all her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him. And embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor. In the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard from, for one day, the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and say, You're. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which He had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Yisrael. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this month is uh, my 20th 
uh, high school reunion. And as we think about uh, 20th high school reunion, some of you say, wow, you're really old. And some of you say, wow, you're really young. And yet there's something about a 20-year reunion in, in which there's a bit of trepidation. What if, what if I really offended somebody back in high school? I don't remember half of the ridiculous things I did in high school. What if, what if there's somebody who still has it out to get me? And then there's other people that respond to these things, and they think, well, I really want to show everybody how awesome I am now. I've been doing CrossFit for years, and I was a nerd in high school, but now I'm all ripped. And everybody's going to love me. And, and people think about things as they go to reunions. They think about uh, what it's going to be like and, and what their experience is going to be. And, and as we, we think about that and we come to Genesis 33, we see that this is a 20-year reunion. Jacob has not seen his brother Esau for 20 years. 20 years earlier, Esau had had sworn that he would kill his brother Jacob for stealing the birthright. Esau had vowed that the one thing he would make sure he did in his life was he would destroy his brother who had spent the better part of his life swindling and deceiving and stealing. And yet we've seen the way God has been at work in Jacob's life. God has been giving grace to Jacob. God has been transforming Jacob, this great deceiver and swindler. Jacob, remember, first has that vision of God when he sees the the ladder set down from heaven to earth and the angels of God ascending and descending. And the Lord Jesus says that that was a type of him and that God was reconciling Jacob to himself. And then in the, the last chapter, we saw that while Jacob is going to see Esau and to meet Esau, and here's that Esau is coming with 400 of his men and Jacob is afraid. We saw the last time we were together that what God is doing is he is teaching Jacob that his relationship with the Lord is vastly more important than his relationship with men and that his dealings with God were what he was to be most concerned about, not his dealings with Esau. And so we saw that Jacob wrestled with God. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He wrestled all night and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God was showing Jacob that he was, he was changing him by his grace And he was enabling Jacob now to go forward and to deal with this last great event in the formative years of Jacob's life as he goes to be reconciled now to his brother Esau. And as we consider this passage this morning, we want to see three things. First, we want to consider Jacob's manner of approach to his brother Esau. And then secondly, we want to consider Esau's reception of Jacob. And then finally, we want to look at Jacob's commitment to the Lord was we consider Jacob's manner of approach. He is a different man. He is not the same Jacob that we saw even a chapter ago. He was fearful at the beginning of chapter 32. He was worried that Esau was going to come and destroy him. He, he even schemed a bit. He put his wives out there. He sent the servants with the present. He, he was hiding out in the back. Jacob was in the back behind everyone and putting everyone else out in front, hoping that that might appease his brother. And then after he wrestles with God, and after God deals with Jacob and shows Jacob that he has nothing to fear, that the most important thing is his relationship with the Lord himself, Jacob's a different man. We see Jacob here at the beginning of chapter 33. You get a sense that he's got a sort of a calm uh, disposition. He's got a resolve about him. He, He is... He is calm and he has a serenity about him. Notice we're told in verse 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold Esau was coming 
and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And notice this. Moses says he himself went on before them. Now Jacob is out in front. He's realized that if God is with him, he doesn't need to fear his brother. He realizes that if God is with him, he can face the most terrifying thing that he has to face. Now, that's massively important to us because when we fear situations or individuals, when we fear what others will think about us, when we fear opposition or persecution for the name of Christ, we are forgetting those words of Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When Jesus sends the disciples out at the Great Commission, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Jacob had, in essence, received that same word from God. God had wrestled with him. God had blessed him. And God had essentially said to him, I am with you. Wherever you go, I am with you. I will go before you. Remember, Jacob at the beginning of chapter 32 had seen the army of God, the whole host of angels encamped around him. God was saying, do not fear. Do not be afraid. There's this marvelous picture of the transformation Jacob has undergone here with Simon Peter in the Gospels. Peter, who was so uh, in himself bold and even impulsive, and, and Peter, who said, Lord, I'll never deny you, even if all these, even if all these people deny you, I'll never deny you. And, and then it's Peter denying Jesus three times, fearing even a little servant girl. I've always been struck by that, that the fear of man is so powerful in our hearts that the great Simon Peter, a strong fisherman, a leader, an alpha male, people, a lot of people wouldn't like Peter. He was very bold. Would, would deny Jesus before a little slave girl. And yet it's that Peter after Pentecost when the Spirit comes and he's restored by Jesus that is right in the same place where he denied Jesus in the very palace of Herod and he is boldly proclaiming their salvation in no other name than at the name of Jesus. And, and God had transformed Peter and God had transformed Jacob. Jacob is calm in a very real sense we can say that what God is about to teach Jacob is that uh, there's a great proverb, Proverbs uh, 16, 7, when a man's way pleases the Lord, he even makes his enemies to be at peace with him. God is about to teach Jacob that if Jacob will commune with God, if Jacob will live in light of God's grace, if Jacob will seek the Lord and will nurture his relationship with the Lord, he has nothing to worry about, even when the most ruthless of enemies comes at him. Jacob is calm. Jacob is also humble. Notice as Esau approaches and Jacob goes out to meet him and he doesn't, he doesn't stay in the back. We're told that he came near in verse 3 and he bowed to his brother seven times. Now, this is not like Jacob. You might say, okay, he bowed, he was honoring his brother, he was respecting his older brother. That's great, wonderful. What does that mean? That means that Jacob is a different person. Because remember, Jacob had spent the entire part of his life, the better part of his life, trying to make it to the top, trying to be the best, trying to have everyone else bow down to him, trying to get the blessing by deceit, trying to amass possessions. Even in the days of Laban, Jacob was still learning what it was to become humble and to become a servant. And he has learned what it is to become humble. He bows before the one who wishes to do him harm. Now, 
I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would have to say this is supernatural because when someone really has it out to get you, the last thing you think you're going to do is bow before them. When someone maliciously has it out for you, what you usually do probably is pick up the phone and slander them to one of your friends and figure out a way to either avoid them or figure out a way to get back at them. That's what the flesh does. Jacob comes now, and Jacob bows before his brother. He shows great humility. It's a mark of a man that's been redeemed. It's a mark of one that doesn't have a a vitriolic spirit. It's a mark of one that knows that vengeance is the Lord's. It's a mark of one that knows that what it means to have received blessing from God in redemption means that we are to be a blessing to others, that we are to seek to serve others, that we are even, and this is the very important point, we are even seeking, we are even to seek to serve those who have it out for us. And this is the whole point of the Christian ethic that flows out of the gospel in the New Testament epistles. Do not return evil for evil, but on the contrary, blessing. Blessing when others do us harm. Blessing when others speak evil of us. Blessing, even as the Lord Jesus served, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And notice as we see more of the transformation of Jacob, we also see that Jacob has become generous. He has become calm and trusting. He has become, he has become humble and he has become generous. He brings this gift. We saw that back in chapter 32. He went and sent a large gift before him to his brother. Now, you get the sense in chapter 32 that Jacob gave that gift initially because he was trying to appease his brother. And, and his motives were probably not altogether right. One of the things that we don't want to miss as we look at this is while Jacob has been transformed by God's grace, he, he still has so much in his life that is not what it should be. Notice that Moses tells us that Jacob put Joseph and Rachel in the back, even after he wrestles with God, even after he's reconciled to God, he puts his choice wife and son, he's still showing favoritism. And, and here, when he gives this gift at the beginning, when he sends it out, he is still sort of conniving. He is thinking, how can I protect myself? I will appease my brother by giving this gift. But you get the sense in chapter 33, that there is generosity flowing out of Jacob and that what Jacob is doing, and this is the really, really important thing. Remember, Jacob did everything in his power to lay hold of the blessing for his own selfish desires. That was what he had been doing his whole life. Whatever it took, he would amass the possessions. He would lay hold of the blessing. It would be his And here, it's an entirely different Jacob. He is willing to give a huge portion of what God had given him to his brother Esau. And even when Esau says, I don't need it, Jacob says, no, take it. Take, please, if I found favor in your sight, accept my present from my hand. Now, you may say, and we'll come to this in a minute, but you may say, well, Esau seems pretty generous too. Jacob seems generous. Esau seems generous. What's the difference? Well, here's what the difference is. If you looked at this passage carefully, you would note that Jacob is everywhere attributing what has happened to him to the grace of God. Three times he mentions God in this chapter. Three times he says, God has been generous 
in giving me all that he's given me. He doesn't, interesting, he doesn't antagonize his brother. He never says, God has blessed me. Because remember, his brother was angry because he had stolen the blessing. He never uses the word blessing. He says, God has been gracious to me. Essentially, he's saying, I don't deserve anything that I have. Jacob is is making a pronouncement. He is bearing witness to the gospel. He is witnessing to his brother. He is saying everything that I have and everything that's happened to me, everything that I am now, everything that I am doing now is because God has been gracious to me. Jacob has appropriated the grace of God in his life. He's realized that he didn't deserve it at all. He realizes that God had completely had mercy on him sovereignly, not because of anything Jacob had done. Remember, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand. The scriptures say, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. God was merciful to Jacob. He was gracious to Jacob. He realized that God had overflowed with goodness to him. And he can't wait to tell his brother Esau about this. And by way of contrast, Esau doesn't mention God once. Now, as we move to consider, secondly, Esau's reception of Jacob, we want to we note that there is this contrast between Jacob and Esau. You, you might think if you just read this on a, a cursory reading, if you, if you sort of read through this chapter quickly, you'd think, okay, that's great. These brothers are reconciled. Everybody's doing their part. Things are looking good. Jacob's being cool. Esau's being cool. He's not killing his brother. This reunion's going Okay. There, there, there's, there's even a, a warm reception. Esau's even weeping and, and hugging his brother. He's gone from malice to welcoming and warmth. And, and great, what's, what's, what, why even put this in the Bible? But there's, there's a contrast. There's a subtle contrast. Jacob had mentioned God three times, saying God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough, Esau has essentially said, I have done fine for myself. Now, it's very interesting. On the one hand, this meeting of brothers uh, was prayed down from heaven. Jacob had really prayed this reconciliatory meeting down from heaven. Uh, William Still, one great Scottish theologian, said, Prayer by the saints on earth so affects the heavenly conflict that this in turn affects the earthly scene. I want to read that again. Prayer by the saints on earth so affects the heavenly conflict that this in turn affects the earthly scene. Jacob had sought the Lord and in seeking the Lord had realized the peace and reconciliation he could now have with his brother. His brother, by way of contrast, and you have to listen very, very carefully, his brother went into this meeting satisfied that he had done well enough for himself. Now, it's interesting. As I I was preparing this sermon, I thought, there are such subtle and yet such powerful lessons in Genesis 33. One of those, those subtle but powerful lessons are, you can have two people, one of whom lives under the grace of God. God has protected and in many ways even given external blessings to. And you can have another who, who at this point is kind and compassionate, welcoming, um, receiving, and has done well. And, and on the surface, if you just looked at those lives, they look very much alike. 
They, they look very much alike. They both have very similar possessions. They are both eager to be reconciled in this meeting to some extent. But what's going on in their lives and what's going on in their hearts and minds are antithetical. What's going on in Jacob's heart and mind is a desire to please the Lord. He wants to be at peace with his brother because he doesn't want to have any relationships that are left open-ended. That is one of the massively big points that we want to take away. When we are in Jesus Christ, we want to make sure that every relationship that we have is as good as it can possibly be as much as it depends on us. Now, I was thinking this week how sad it is, and maybe you've experienced this in your life, how sad it is when you have um, unbelieving Esau and believing Jacob reconciled, and yet there are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who refuse to be reconciled. What a sad, sad thing that is, that, that even an unbeliever like Esau could submit to this reconciliatory meeting, and yet there are believers that harbor bitterness. You know, Jesus gives so many, many warnings in Scripture. In fact, he says, that, that more important than you being here this morning, worshiping him, in one sense, I say this carefully, he says it's more important for you to leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Um, the apostle says that very clearly when he says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Jacob is here doing that. Esau, uh, by way of contrast, has really just gotten what he always wanted. That's, that's why Esau receives Jacob. Remember, in the beginning of this story, Jacob and Esau were fighting over the birthright. And when Jacob had deceived his brother and had stolen the birthright, even though God had said it was going to be his by grace, Esau, remember, cried out when he went into his father and he said, My father, bless me, bless me. Is there not a blessing for me too? And he wept and he cried and he longed for the possessions that he wanted so desperately. And here, he's gotten exactly what he wanted. He went and he did it on his own, and he missed the point that it was never about the physical possessions. It was always about the inheritance, pointing beyond itself to the heavenly inheritance that God was promising his people, and that whatever possessions God had given them were little down payments to help them hope for what is greater and what is eternal and what is unfading, and, and Jacob got it, and Esau never gets it. No, um, Esau is one of those sad figures because here you, you almost start to like Esau. I mean, there's, 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 a, there's even a similarity in the language uh, with the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal returns home and his father, it says, runs out and meets him and welcomes him and greets him and weeps. And, and a lot of theologians believe that Jesus is actually lifting that language out of Genesis 33. It's the same language. But here, that's Jacob returning home. Jacob is going back to the land of promise. Jacob is walking by faith, not by sight. Esau is still pressing out into the world. He will move on from this meeting, and he will go further into the world. He will just continue on with his worldly lifestyle, and he becomes this tragic example. The writer of Hebrews tells us that while we are to be hoping in 
the city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, he says, lest there be, we, sh- we should fear, lest there be among any of us, uh, he says, a fornicator or an unclean person like Esau, who for, for a morsel of food sold his birthright. And when he afterwards wanted to get that, he longed for it, he wept for it, he cried out for it, but he found no place for repentance. Esau is unrepentant. Jacob is repentant. And you see the Holy Spirit drawing these two out and setting them before us. Yes, to teach us that when our ways are pleasing to the Lord and we have been reconciled to God, we will also long to be reconciled with others. But also to set before us these two examples. Are we going like Jacob to realize that our relationship with the Lord and our need for repenting grace and believing grace and trusting grace is more important than laying up for ourselves whatever possessions we may amass in this life. You know, I think if, and, and I've often been convicted by this, if, if we were really, if we could really just be 100% honest, and I don't think that's actually possible. I, I really don't think it's possible for you to know the depth of your depravity and for me to know the depth of mine. But if you could be really absolutely honest about what motivates you in life, I think there is often far too much Esau in us, far too much love of the world, love of possessions. I speak for myself, love of comfort, security, status. And see, what we're being taught here, even in this contrast between Jacob and Esau, as they're coming together, reconciled in God's grace, in a sense, uh, uh, intervening over this relationship, we are being taught that if we do not find our satisfaction in the Lord, if we don't find our satisfaction in Christ, we're going to make idols for ourselves of everything under heaven. And we're going to set our affections on everything under heaven, everything that is passing and futile and vain. And we will be just like Esau who said, I've done fine for myself. You know, when I was, um, I suppose, about 19, 20 years old, I was a uh, chef at a restaurant. And I worked with a, a chef who was a little older than me. And one day I, I said to him, you know, I'm thankful I have a job. You know, a lot of people don't have jobs, and I'm thankful that the Lord gave me this job. And I've never in my life seen someone get so angry. Um, he, he just in fury said, I've worked for where I am. God didn't give me anything. And I, and I think back on that. What a, what a frightening thing that he would take the very breath that God gives him. And he would say such arrogant and God rebelling things like that. And yet we think those things. And so God wants us to come and to see that what's happened to Jacob is happening to us if we're in Jesus Christ. God is freeing us. Jacob is being freed from the love of possessions. Jacob is willing to give up the possessions. Jacob is resting in the fact that God has dealt graciously with him. There is now, though, that uh, sense in which Jacob is still eager for this reconciliation. I don't want us to miss that. Um, Charles Bridges, one of the great commentators on the book of Proverbs, said the best way for our enemies to be reconciled to us is for us to be reconciled to God. Jacob is learning. He's learning that even as he realizes what God is doing for him in Esau receiving him. Now, lastly, I want us to consider Jacob's commitment to the Lord because it goes beyond this interaction. And and you might miss this if you looked at this in a rushed way, but 
there is sort of a crossroads for Jacob here. Jacob has been reconciled to his brother. He, he has seen God's enormous grace in his life. He is being transformed into the man God wants him to be. And now the greatest weight around his neck for 20 years has been lifted. He's reconciled to his brother. And the temptation for Jacob is to go with his brother and to go back to the world and to live with his brother. That's the great temptation that Jacob faced. Notice that Esau says to him in verse 12, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows, and he tells him all of the dangers that he he worries about. I think that's sort of his nice way of not rebuking his brother and saying, I can't go with you because you love the world. I can't live with you. I can't go back to the world. Notice Esau then says, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. And Jacob says, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and build himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Now, we don't want to miss this. Jacob, now that he's reconciled to Esau and, and in a sense has, has realized that the enmity and the hostility of the world uh, has, been, has been removed for a moment in his life from him, he, he is now tempted to go back to the world. He is tempted to live with his brother. And I actually think Esau's, Esau's um, proposal to Jacob is is very sophisticated. Esau says, I'll go ahead of you and you come after me. Now, now that should bring our minds back to what God said through the blessing pronounced on Jacob when he received the covenant benediction that, that his brother would serve him. The older, remember, would serve the younger. Jacob I have loved Esau I have hated, nations would bow down to the seed of Jacob, who is Jesus Christ. Remember, everything about Jacob is about Jesus. Everything about Jacob is about God bringing a redeemer. Everything about Jacob is about God forming a people for himself, redeeming a people to himself, fulfilling his promises. And everything about Jacob depended on Jacob trusting God to do that by grace and trusting God even when he was being tempted. Here, Jacob is being tempted to fall under the yoke of his brother. His brother is saying, I will lead on. Come, follow me. And that's a very real and a very powerful temptation. You know, I, I often think that enough emphasis is not placed on those warnings in Scripture not to turn back to the world. Rudder of Hebrews says, um, it's a fearful thing if we turn from the living God, if we turn from our profession, if we go back to the world, if we go back to what we've been redeemed out of. I think that's always a very real temptation. Here Jacob passes this test. He, he passes it and he, he walks by faith and he says, while you were going away from the place of God's blessing, because remember the promised land is where God had told Jacob to go back to, Esau is moving further away from the promised land. Jacob says, I will go back. Now, there is a nuance here. Jacob actually doesn't go to Bethel. He doesn't go back to where God had told him to go. He doesn't go directly back to the promised land. He stops on the way. You see, there's a picture here of Jacob. Even though he's committed to the Lord, he is very imperfect. Even though he is 
committed to the Lord and being sanctified by the Lord, there's still so much imperfection in Jacob. He stops, he builds, you get the sense, a large home and, and, and all sorts of luxuries for his animals, and he stops for a moment. He, he vacillates in going back. He doesn't want to go back all the way. His heart is not fully obedient to the Lord. And yet, he presses on, and notice that we're told that he goes from this place where he builds the house in Succoth, this place of booths, he goes to Shechem, and he, he, we're told in verse 18, which is in the land of Canaan. Jacob has made it back. He has fulfilled his journey. He has obeyed the Lord, yes, imperfectly, and yet he has walked by faith, and he has gone back to where God has told him. And notice that what we're told is he buys that piece of land, and the last thing, in verse 20, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Yisrael. Now, two things. Jacob is acknowledging that he's a sinner and that he needs a savior. The whole point of him building an altar and sacrificing is him saying, I need redemption. He's acknowledging he is repenting. He's repenting of all his foolishness. Perhaps he's repenting of building the house in Succoth. Perhaps he's, he's repenting of not having obeyed the Lord fully. He is repenting. And he is acknowledging his need for redemption. And then he calls the place the mighty God of Israel. Now, you might say, okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, there is no nation of Israel. Remember, there's only an individual. There's no nation. He is, he is saying, God is my God. God is the God who has redeemed me. He doesn't call him the fear of Isaac, which he called him in the earlier chapters. He now says the mighty God, the creator God is my God by redemption, has made me not Jacob, but Israel. He is the mighty God of his people who he has redeemed. And so Jacob is in every way showing and teaching us what it is to be redeemed and committed to the Lord. Now, let me just say this as we close this morning. Jacob doesn't actually do anything to get to this place. You know, I, our consciences are so hardwired to want to work. Just be a good enough person. And God will accept us. If I surrender all, I hate singing that, by the way, because not one of us has ever surrendered one iota of what we owe to God compared to the perfection of his law. Not, not a single drop compared to what he demands. And yet, God is gracious to Jacob. It is all God's sovereign grace. And the question is, how can God be so full of goodness to Jacob? How can he, how can he do that? How can he show him this enormous mercy and these enormous kindnesses? How can, he, how can he protect him? How can he be his provider? How can he continue to restore him and revive him? And the answer is simple. The, the greater son of Jacob comes, and he lives a perfectly obedient life to his father, never wavers. He keeps God's law absolutely perfectly. He never stops on the way. He never gets sidetracked. He sets his face steadfastly to go to the cross. He walks perfectly to the cross. He marches there. He takes all of the sin, all of the foolishness. And you know what he does? He serves. And he serves his enemies. It's interesting. Here Jacob has served Esau, his enemy. And there's been reconciliation that has been born out of that. The greater Jacob comes. And he always pleases his father. And he lays down his life, not for people who deserved it, not 
for people who could ever say, I've done well enough for myself. But he comes for the unrighteous, for those who hated him by nature. He lays down his life for us when we're his enemies in order to reconcile us to God, in order to reconcile us to one another. And the mystery, the mystery of reconciliation that we see in Genesis 33 is entirely dependent on who Jesus is and what he did for us. In every way, it is absolutely dependent. Now, I want to ask you just a few questions as we close this morning. First, I would say, have you seen, have you seen that innate greed and selfishness in your heart? Have you seen your, your dire need to be reconciled to God? That's, that's the overarching point. Jacob saw his need to be reconciled to God. And, and he, he realized the transformation of, of God's grace. You know, that, that is something that has to happen in our lives. If we belong to God, God is committed to doing that in our lives. That's something we always have to ask myself. Am I experiencing God's grace in my life? Is that manifesting itself in me being zealous to have relationships that are reconciled with others? Whether in the church, in the world? Am I, am I zealous to be a peacemaker? Am I zealous to fall down and serve others? Am I zealous to put others above myself? Or am I the kind of person that wants to say, no, I will put my ways first. I will look out for number one and I will do fine for myself. God would have us look at this this morning. The Lord would have us be honest with ourselves. And then I'd say, secondly, have you seen, if you have experienced God's grace, that, that you've done nothing to merit that? Can you say with Jacob, And this is a great question for us. I'll leave you with this. Does my speech betray that I really believe that everything I am and everything I have is by the grace of God? I don't mean do I use Christian language. I'm not saying do I speak religiously. I mean, Jesus rebukes that. People take his name up on their lips, but their hearts are far from him. But does our speech betray that we really believe that everything about our life is by grace? No, I think, as we close, I think God inspired Genesis 33 to strip us of any sense of what I have, I deserve, and I can do it on my own. I think he just wants to strip us of that so that we will say all that I have is merely by his grace, and I will bear witness to him, and I will bear witness to his goodness and his grace, and I will seek to be pleasing to him in all of the relationships that I have. I hope that the Lord will use this in our lives, and he will conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus, the perfect servant who perfectly obeyed and who took all of our sin and all of our greed and all of our selfishness so that we might be a blessing and might know reconciliation in our own lives. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we have far too much love of this world in our hearts, and we too often speak as though we have done what we do, and, and um, we speak of our lives as if they are in our own hands, and as if whatever attainments we may have attained, we have done that by our own strength. And we ask that you would forgive us. We pray that you would strip us of all self-righteousness and pride. And you would make us to confess with Jacob that you, the mighty God of Israel, are our God. And 
that you are our redeemer and that you have been gracious to us and that all that we are and all that we have has come to us merely by your undeserved sovereign mercy and grace. Our Father, we thank you for that grace in Jesus Christ. We pray as we come to the table that you would strengthen our understanding of these things and you'd help us to feed on your goodness and your mercy in Christ this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.